Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, one of the hot topics in the investment world, no, one that we haven't talked about a great deal, but is very relevant if you follow the superannuation industry and also some unlisted funds, if that's your thing, is valuations for commercial property and whether commercial property assets are appropriately valued in a whole new world post-COVID, whether people are going to take a big hit because things are going to change. But the world of non-residential property extends far beyond Australia and even further beyond office space, which tends to be where we focus our attention. So it's a good time to be talking about whether opportunities exist beyond the talking points or if there are risks that you need to be thinking about. Today, I'm joined by Julian Campbell-Wood, Portfolio Manager with Resolution Capital, to talk about real estate investment trusts, uh, used to be LPTs when I first started, on a global scale. Julian, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks very much for having me, Gemma. So, Julian, let's start with the basics because we, when we chatted before we got into this, there will be some listeners and some investors for whom real estate investment trusts have been around a long time. They know how they work. They know what they're dealing with. And there'll be others where there's a lot to be thinking about. You're talking about global REITs. What are you including in that universe? Yeah, I guess it's starting with the basics in terms of REITs and what we include. I mean, in the simple terms, a REIT's just a company that owns operates and finances a portfolio of income generating real estate that happens to be listed. But within that, you can have a huge range uh, of different property types. Uh, in Australia, you're even more accustomed to the traditional, whether it's office, retail, industrial. But when we look globally, uh, it's a very different opportunity set. You know, we go into rental housing, for example, uh, in, in certain countries around the world, also into healthcare real estate, you could have GP surgeries, and then into the tech-oriented uh, areas of the market, so data centres, cell towers, uh, and even things like timberlands uh, can be in the REIT space. So it can be a hugely diverse range of different property types uh, around the world. So you've sort of covered it a bit. How different is that to really what investors think about when they're in Australia? Do you think they're not necessarily looking as broadly as they could and do they have different characteristics? Yeah, Australia is a, a smaller market uh, and to some degree that limits the opportunity set uh, and limits you know, the scale of, of vehicles uh, which can be in the listed space for, for investors to access. So one of the attractions of being in global markets is you're often in, in much bigger markets uh, and that increases you know, the depth of opportunities. Uh, and that can mean that some of these sectors which may be considered you know, smaller and, and niche uh, in an Australian context, when we look globally, can be actually quite big areas of the market. And that's true, you know, particularly for things like data centres and cell towers, which can be huge companies uh, in, in North America that we look at. And then others which really just aren't that prevalent in the Australian market, healthcare real estate being another example where uh, in North America and Europe, you've got you know, different forms of rental seniors housing, uh, hospitals, uh, life science real estate, uh, which is all uh, included in the REIT universe. So definitely a significantly different breadth of opportunity uh, in the global REIT space compared to what uh, many investors can access here uh, by the A REITs. Let's talk about the factors 
of some of those different areas. And, and you'll have to tell me also about how you put a portfolio together when you look at all these different things. Big challenges for Australian REITs at the moment are not dissimilar to some of the areas of global property. Rising rates being the biggest issue when you consider that most property assets are funded with fairly substantial debt holdings. A lot of investors who've been around a long time will remember LPTs, I'm using the old terminology, but will remember real estate vehicles getting into a lot of trouble when rates rose because they couldn't cover their debt costs. Can you talk us through why rising rates are a real challenge, particularly when rates have risen so quickly and what investors need to keep in mind? Yeah, the the, uh, the LPTs of old and, and some of the, the global REITs as well definitely got themselves into difficulties uh, in the GFC um, through too much leverage as much as uh, interest rates increasing. Um, but there's a couple of things to con- consider there in terms of the impact of interest rates uh, on, on the listed sector. Yeah, first and foremost, is it's the impact on, on values. So with your discount rates increasing, you know, that's going to lower the value of future cash flows for all asset classes, and that's being uh, reflected uh, in the listed real estate market. But it's important to consider also the other side of that equation is, you know, what is the cash flow growth uh, that these assets are generating? Uh, and that's the critical offset in these sort of periods where you've got um, you know, rising discount rates, putting some pressure on value. Are your cash flows growing and to what degree? Uh, and can that you know, offset some of this value impact? So that's that's one part of it. And we can come back to that in terms of you know, the property fundamentals we're seeing, which are actually pretty healthy uh, in, in most asset classes. But back to you know, your point on debt uh, in, in the sector, pleasingly in most markets around the world, uh, and Australia would be in this bucket as well. There's a lot less debt being used in the listed real estate market than there was going back to the GFC. Uh, and that's true in the US, it's true in the UK and Australia, uh, less so in Europe where you are seeing some challenges because those vehicles uh, have used uh, too much leverage in some cases. But generally speaking, debt levels are lower. And that gives us more comfort that if there is you know, declines in values, that the REITs won't get into some of these issues that they had previously where they had to do heavily dilutive rights issues uh, to cure their balance sheets. If by and large in these markets, that's not um, that's not something that we're concerned about. Now, when it comes to the interest cost, yes, that's going to have an impact on the P&L uh, and, and potentially distributions to the extent that the REITs can't grow their, their cash flows to help offset that. Uh, so critical to be in those types of real estate where you can grow rents and grow cash flows uh, to offset that increase uh, in interest costs. But that's a headwind to earnings. Yeah, the, the real impact that will kill your, your returns, uh, as I said, is that it's too much debt and, and rights issues. Uh, and that's not something that we're too concerned about uh, in most markets around the world. So part of the conversation we had before we started recording was about liquidity. It wasn't something I necessarily was going to ask you about, but it's certainly making headlines now. So if you're an Australian investor, you read the financial review and the financial press, you would be aware that some unlisted funds have paused, reduced, frozen redemption. So you're not able to get your money out or you're not able to get as much money out as you hope to. That's happened in the past. So you and I both referring to the GFC because it was such a formative experience, I think, if you're an investor or in any way involved in markets and 
those who were around during that period will remember when you flat out could not get your money out at all. There were no redemptions. They were frozen. Some funds went under completely, not necessarily just in the REIT space. Can you talk about the liquidity issues that some are facing at the moment? Yeah, it is a, a big issue and a recurring issue. As you know, listed managers, uh, to us, it's one of the key attractions of, of investing in real estate via the listed market. Clearly, volatility is the price you pay for that access to capital. But if investors do need their capital, you can get access to it uh, and at a price that you choose. Now, that price may not always be what you want it to be, but you can get access. Uh, and that, that is important. Um, feature of investing in, in the listed market. Now, when you move into you know, unlisted funds, um, not just real estate, you, know, you trade that liquidity uh, and that comes at a price. And when you look at the last 10 years of private markets, we've had huge flows of capital into some of these unlisted products. And many investors probably haven't really tried to test these uh, liquidity mechanisms. Uh, and you're just starting to see that in, in Australia with, with some of the headlines. Uh, more recently, but it's something which has occurred in the UK. Uh, we've seen it uh, also in the US in some of the big vehicles there. And it's investors trying to get their capital out, um, but also it's tied to the fact that private market values uh, in some of these vehicles haven't reflected you know, the change in um, real estate fundamentals that we've seen from an interest rate and cost of capital perspective. So yeah, private market values are lagging. Investors are trying to pull out their capital and as a result, those managers haven't been able to you know, sell properties uh, to release that capital at, at prices in line with where they're being held. So you're in this bit of friction point where investors can see that they can get their capital out or want to get their capital out rather. Transaction markets are slow uh, and private market values you know, haven't um, moved anywhere near where the listed market has and that's causing you know, this this challenge at the moment where you are seeing some of these funds uh, gate redemptions. I haven't used the term gating before. <laughs> Might have to start using that one. On that topic, there has also been a lot of press um, and it's affecting uh, some of the superannuation funds and, and sort of other big players, this issue of having to sell very large property assets at a discount. And the talk of the town literally perhaps, is return to office and whether that is going to happen in a meaningful way, whether we're going to go back to normal pre-COVID days or whether work from home is just going to be, uh, it, you know, it's a structural shift and we're always going to have that as a component now and therefore there should be some write down of the assets uh, for some office. Do you have any thoughts on that? And is that same kind of dynamic playing out in some of the other sectors that you look at? Yeah, answering the work from home question first, I think it, it's interesting when you look at different markets around the world, uh, the return to office has happened to, to different degrees. So in certain Asian markets, it's much closer to pre-COVID levels in terms of utilisation. So that's the number of people um, using the buildings. Uh, and when you look at other markets such as the US, Australia, uh, it, it's still you know, lagging quite meaningfully. Uh, Europe is a little bit in between uh, on the continent, you know, much closer to pre-COVID levels uh, and the UK to, to a lesser extent. But what, that's, what that means is those markets where you do have this lower utilisation uh, and in Australia, in the press more recently, you've seen some of that start to be um, you know, clearly uh, documented within 
uh, agreements for staff that you can work from home, ultimately that means that you know, some of these tenants need less space. Uh, and you've seen that with increasing vacancy in office markets in Australia. Uh, the US is particularly challenged. And to give you a sense of San Francisco, it's its vacancy is around 32% at the moment. So almost a third of office space in San Francisco is uh, is vacant, which is pretty extraordinary. So certain markets are definitely challenged and that should reflect or should be reflected uh, in values, uh, seeing some downward pressure. So yes, office uh, has, has probably faced the most significant challenges as a result of, of the COVID experience. When we look at other sectors, um, there's been some, some positives, um, pleasingly. When you look at retail, for example, you go back to the pre-COVID experience, it was very much e-commerce is going to kill bricks and mortar retail, uh, no one's going to want to go to the stores, and that was magnified through COVID when we couldn't go to the stores. But actually coming out of it, behaviour has really uh, reverted. You know, people enjoy going back to the stores. and you know, the experience during COVID actually saw the store used in a different way. So we've seen the demand for, for retail real estate um, snap back you know, quite quickly uh, and quite strongly in many markets. So retail real estate has, has really benefited with, you know, the tenants now you know, much more focused on having the right stores, using their stores differently, click and collect, curbside distribution, et cetera. Uh, and that's seen you know, a real benefit to, to leasing demand and returns for um, certain retail formats in, in North America uh, and Australia. And I think another one I'd highlight, which has been even more topical in the last few months with the explosion of AI, uh, has been you know, the continued growth in demand uh, for data centres. So for the storage, the transmission, the processing, you know, the, the way that we're all working now uh, and living has, has really created continued demand uh, for data centres. And you've seen that improving fundamentals for the data centre space. Uh, and AI is just another layer to how you know, this type of real estate is ever more critical to the way that we're all living and working. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. It's not like AI only happened in the last three months, but it no, seems to right. suddenly realised we're a bit excited about it uh, for the rest of the time where we're not paying too much attention. When you're looking at global opportunities, and I'd love you to talk to uh, rental housing and seniors housing actually at some point also, but when you're looking at a fairly extraordinary universe relative to just looking in Australia. Are there some countries and jurisdictions that are more appealing to you than others? Is that part of your thinking? So we look at the, the universe really through a property uh, sector lens. Um, so we're looking for some of the big secular themes which are driving real estate returns. And when you think about what's been impacting real estate returns, it is evident in most markets. So work from home, we just discussed. I mean, that's a global trend. Yes, there's nuance and difference by markets as we touched on, um, but that is very much a global conversation. Um, when we talk about retail, the impact on physical retail, the impact on logistics markets, again, you know, very much global trend, uh, secular trend, and then others such as you know, digitization. again. So the big drivers of real estate returns are increasingly global in nature. So when we look for those secular trends, we're looking at how they're being reflected uh, in the individual markets, and then we're underwriting those individual 
markets in terms of property fundamentals, so demand, supply, access to capital, access to credit uh, in those markets. So we drill into those big secular themes, look at how they're um, playing out in the regions, in the different countries, try and understand you know, the individual market nuance, uh, and we do that by spending an awful lot of time on the road. And then we'll express that by underwriting you know, the individual stock opportunities um, where we can access those returns. When we look at regional positioning, you know, we don't put too much faith in short-term macro forecasts. Uh, so we're looking at you know, what are the macro risks that could impact the property returns or what are the range of outcomes there. Uh, and for us, certain regions can be more relatively attractive given the opportunity set. So you may have uh, high-quality companies internally managed, you know, for those who recall the LPT days, the old externally managed uh, REITs, again, a flawed model from an incentive standpoint. Uh, and they're still, they're prevalent in Singapore and Japan. So certain regions will have those features, which mean, you know, we have less opportunity to express um, our views on some of those big secular drivers. Oh, that's quite interesting. You might need to explain that for a few people who wouldn't have been familiar with how those operated. Yeah, so in simple terms for a REIT, you can have an internally managed REIT or an externally managed REIT. For an internally managed REIT, think of something like Centre Group where the portfolio and the management team, it's one company, and, and when you buy a share of Centre Group, you're buying a share in, in that company, the management team and, and everything. An externally managed REIT means that portfolio is separate from the team of people or the business that manages it, uh, and the portfolio will pay a fee uh, to that management company. In an Australian context, you think of things like charter hall retail, for example, and that just means that the REIT pays a fee for that management, and the alignment of incentives, in our view, is more flawed in that externally managed REIT model because often um, you can have good managers of externally managed REITs, to be clear, but often the incentive is to grow the scale of the vehicle rather than maximise the returns of the assets. So that's one of the filters we apply. Uh, we typically don't invest in externally managed REITs because of that um, flaw in the alignment structure. In our experience, internally managed REITs um, have tended to deliver better returns over time. Yeah, that's an interesting one for investors to think about. So the critical thing with investing in commercial property is generally looking to your rents and thinking about income. I know Australian investors, when they think about property, tend to think residential. When they think about residential, they think about growth and about capital gains. They're fairly ambivalent about the yield side of things. That's a totally different story in your world. How have rents been affected over the last few years when we think about COVID, when we think about rising rates and all of the different factors that would really dynamically affect yields, which would otherwise you imagine be fairly stable? Yeah, so a couple of things to, to focus on when we think about you know, rents and the outlook for rents. Um, and it's really not not so much tied to, to interest rates. It's really the, the pricing power of landlords uh, and the supply and the demand uh, trade-off or balance between in that specific property type. So when you're looking at um, you know, REITs or real estate in general, that's the critical, uh, one of the critical return drivers uh, is do the landlords have pricing power uh, and simply can they increase rents and grow cash flow uh, and maintain high occupancy uh, for their, their portfolios. 
And when we look at most sectors around the world, we're still seeing pretty healthy operating conditions. Occupancies are high, rents are growing, cash flows are growing, office is the exception in, in certain markets around the world. Uh, and there are property sectors where uh, rents are normalising from excessive uh, levels of the last couple of years. In, in logistics, for example, uh, markets like Southern California, you had rents go up 100% two years. So clearly there's, there's some, some normalisation to, to occur there. But if we look broadly across the universe, um, yeah, you've got economy still running pretty healthy levels. Uh, employment is, is strong, wage growth is there. So, and that's being reflected in, again, pretty, pretty decent demand for, for most of these property types. And then when we look at the supply side, and that's, again, one of the critical uh, determinants of return, we haven't had a real estate cycle which has been categorised by excessive supply to the extent that we have uh, in prior cycles. And with the exception of, of certain logistics markets and, and multifamily or, or rental housing, sorry, rental apartments in, uh, in North America, particularly in the Sunbelt, there hasn't been excessive supply. And that's an important determinant of landlords' ability to, to grow rents. So pleasingly, as it stands today, you know, property, yes, is, is facing uh, some high cap rates given discount rates have increased, but the cash flows are still, uh, still growing, occupancy is still healthy, uh, and that's helping to um, offset some of the value pressure you're seeing from the change in cap rates. Yeah, that's really interesting, that point you're making about supply and we talk about it as it relates to particularly residential supply in Australia. It's just a topic all the time. And I was a bank where always thinking about it with uh, with very high migration levels. When you do look at the range of different things that you can invest in, what's most attractive to you at the moment? What are you looking at going, oh, God, that's good value? Yeah, so the two of the, the most attractive sectors to us uh, at the moment have been uh, rental housing. And, uh, and also seniors housing uh, in, in a couple of markets around the world. And it's important for, to, to create, make the distinction for rental housing. So you touched on a little bit in terms of the low rental yields that you get in Australia. Yeah, we can invest in, in rental housing uh, in North America, Canada, et cetera, where you're getting you know, mid fives, um, sometimes 6% yields, uh, which at the moment are growing you know, anywhere from you know, 3 to 7%. So quite a healthy um, total return from a cash flow perspective you know, versus you know, the return profile of, uh, of Australian residential real estate. And that's because these, um, these markets have big institutional rental markets. So multifamily, you know, big uh, rental apartment complexes, but also portfolios of, of single family homes in North America. Uh, and those single family homes is, is probably got some of the the best fundamentals over a multi-year period, uh, and that's on a couple of fronts. Firstly, the supply side we touched on. Uh, the US hasn't built enough single-family homes coming out of the GFC, and you're seeing a real tightness. Uh, occupancies in these portfolios are close to, to 98%. Uh, and with the increase in construction costs and increase uh, in finance costs, reduction in construction cost availability, uh, you're seeing a pullback uh, in in, in housing starts. So supply outlook is, is quite good. Uh, and then the affordability piece with you know, significant increase in mortgage costs uh, and still quite sticky house prices, the relative affordability of renting uh, a single family home in North America uh, is significantly better than, than buying at this point. 
next piece is is the demographics. You know, the, the millennial cohort is growing faster uh, in the US, so that 35 to 44-year-old renter, uh, and they're more comfortable renting. So on the demand side, you've got a pretty pretty good outlook demographically. The supply side is slowing, uh, and you're generating you know, healthy cash shields, which uh, are still seeing reasonable rental growth. So that rental housing piece uh, is, is still quite attractive to us. And then on the seniors housing side, um, somewhat similar because in the US this is a rental model versus you know what you'd be accustomed to in Australia with DMF and uh, the bonds. But um, the seniors housing side of things, again, supply is really declining. Uh, you've got needs-based demand. And then from a demographic perspective, um, when you look at the, the growth in the over 80s cohort in, in many markets, um, but also in the US, that's going to grow at two and a half times faster than the US population. Uh, so that creates quite a good setup for these portfolios to, you know, continue to grow rents, supply is not an issue, uh, and the vehicles with which we invest, um, invitation homes and well tower in these case, you know, well capitalised, well run companies. Uh, so, so they're two of the more attractive um, areas at the moment for us. Thank you for talking through those two. I think it's so interesting to understand the dynamics. It's always fascinating. People feel they understand property really well, not least because it dominates headlines in Australia. It dominates barbecue talk. We talk about it all the time. And sometimes we realize that the dynamics in a different market are dramatically different, despite the fact that the houses look really similar and the population's not dissimilar. Do you mind talking through quickly for anyone who's not aware of it, why people have a fairly significant disincentive to sell a house with a mortgage on it in the US. So I think if you don't understand that, you'd be like, well, surely if rates are rising, everybody's going to offload their houses if they can't afford that mortgage anymore. But their mortgages are very different to here as well. Yeah, that's that's right, Gemma. Uh, so the US has the advantage of long-term fixed-rate mortgages. So many in Australia would have had a two to three year fixed mortgage in, in recent years, but in the US, you're looking at up to 30 years. So if you fixed your mortgage in the last few years at, at two to three percent, you're in an extremely advantageous uh, position and really not feeling a lot of the pressure uh, that many of us are here with interest rates having increased so meaningfully. Um, so that's a significant difference yeah, in, uh, in the US residential market versus many others. Yeah, it's particularly fascinating because I assume it suppresses turnover, right? If you've got a 2 to 3% mortgage uh, for the next 15 years and you might see a super attractive house around the corner, but you know to be able to finance that house, you have to take out a new mortgage at 6%. Maybe you'll just pass, right? <laughs> Say what you are, seems much more attractive. Put the money into a renovation or something rather than uh, you can't transfer, transfer the mortgage rate to the best of my understanding and therefore you're uh, you're pretty much going to stay where you are or uh, or dramatically increase your costs. Yes, yeah, de definitely a, a disincentive, but there are different, you can refinance you know, some of these, these longer-term facilities uh, as rates decline, but yes, you're right, there is a definite dis disincentive um, to, to move. It's uh, no comfort, cold comfort to Australian investors and uh, and property owners or mortgage holders. I'm sorry, but uh, but fascinating to understand the different dynamics. Julian, you've talked about where you see the opportunities, which is exciting. You've talked about some of the issues, certainly in office and issues with liquidity. Anything that's making you nervous? Anything that you think, oh, I'd be steering away from that at the moment in the property space? So when we look at the uh, the fundamentals of most sectors, uh, we've touched on that they're still they're pretty healthy 
So from a cash flow perspective, you know, we're comfortable that most of the, the vehicles that we're looking at won't have any issues meeting uh, interest bills, sustaining distributions, and you know, that will support the total returns of those vehicles. I think where we've been cautious and, and where we're still concerned uh, is, is certain markets in uh, in Europe where a number of vehicles have too much leverage. Sweden is the market uh, that comes to mind, which is, is pretty challenged given the, the leverage that many of these companies have employed. So anywhere where there's pockets of, of too much debt, uh, I think that, that is an area where we're still pretty cautious, not just from a servicing the debt cost, but if there is uh, increasing credit constraints in any of these markets, you know, that does cause us um, concern. And yeah, from a sector perspective, I think we've, we've touched on, on where the, the biggest risk is at the moment, and that's, um, that is select office markets predominantly in North America or anywhere where you've got um, you know, vacancy really starting to, to increase. Yeah, that 32% number in San Francisco is just extraordinary. Uh, as uh, a market where even insanely wealthy people felt the property was far too expensive, that's quite quite a shift, right? That's pretty amazing. It is a it is extraordinary. San Fran is, is a bit of a high beta or a bit of a boom and bust type market from that standpoint but yeah it's if you're an office landlord in that market it's very difficult uh, to lease your buildings even if you do have uh, some of the highest quality space so it'll be interesting to see how how long that takes to stabilize I suspect there'll be a lot of people sort of mildly amused as well <laughs> the gold coast of uh, of the US except tech bubble related uh, Julian You've covered such a range of areas, and I think most of them are ones where most of our investors are not super well informed. I think people would love to learn more about a lot of the things that you've been talking about. Where can people go to keep up to date with you guys and what you're working on? Yeah, rescap.com uh, is uh, is our, our website, and, and there you'll find uh, our quarterly notes, um, which we spend a fair amount of time writing, sort of outlining our views and uh, our, our travels around the world. Uh, and webinars and and, um, industry discussions such as we're having here. Julian Campbell-Wood from Resolution Capital, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Gemma. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We love getting your questions and suggestions for future topics. Feedback's always amazing. Please just email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.